And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to, his, to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let us pray. Father God, we read these words of Scripture this morning. Perhaps the most ghastly picture in all of Scripture, Lord. In this, the last book that closes out the canon of the New Testament, Lord. Father, a book that has been so neglected and so rejected by so many Christians and so many churches when it was written to the churches. Lord, in this book we have the most important verse in all of the Bible. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power for Thou hast created all things and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Lord, we've got the most profound chapter in the Bible. When the, the saints are gathered around the throne as the Lamb who is worthy to receive the scroll opens the title deed of the earth to claim what is His. And Father, we also have the most ghastly picture in all of Scripture. And it's right here. We've also got the most beautiful picture in all of Scripture that follows right on its heels. But today, Father, we pause to consider this ghastly reality that men have preached all the way back to the days of Noah, a preacher of righteousness, who have preached this ghastliness in the face of evil, Lord. For you are the judge. And one day, payday, payday is coming. So Lord, may we somberly pause this morning and consider these sobering words. And Father, I just pray that for those of us who have been saved by the Messiah of Jesus Christ, we will find great comfort and hope. For in Him we are not only saved to Thee, O Lord, we are saved from Thee. And we are saved from this ghastly throne room of judgment. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that Your your Word would be anointed this morning and that we, even the preacher himself, would hear and be humbled and convicted. In Jesus' name, Amen. Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked this earth second only to Jesus Christ, tasted every dainty, every pleasure, every riches, everything you can imagine in this life. Solomon, the Lord appeared to Solomon at least twice. Solomon was wise and asked God to bless him with wisdom when he could have asked for anything else. And God did do so. And he blessed him with everything else. But Solomon loved many women. And Solomon allowed these women to change his heart. And instead of trying to please God, he spent more time trying to please all his wives and then allowed them to worship their own gods and allowed idolatry to come into Israel. 
Made very foolish, many foolish mistakes. Didn't practice what he preached in the Proverbs. But he at least recognized it and owned up to it. He owned up to it toward the end of his life when he considered himself nothing, not a king to be modeled, but simply a preacher who had learned some hard lessons. And he wrote for us the book of Ecclesiastes. The Kohelet. The preacher, we say in Hebrew. And at the very end of that book are some important words. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You want to know the conclusion of everything? Don't argue with me because if it's out there, I've tried it. I've tasted it. I've had it. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For God shall bring every work into judgment, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Guys, the conclusion of all of life is fear God and do what He says because He is going to judge every work. He is the judge. And my friends, this, this great white throne is that conclusion. It is that judgment that Solomon warned us about. That Solomon undoubtedly warned his own son about. But his son refused to listen. And his son refused to listen. And it wasn't until Solomon's great-grandson that they got the picture at least a little bit. At least for a while. My friends, this conclusion, this judgment that we avoid in our conversations, avoid in our witnessing, avoid from our pulpits. It's coming, and it's coming for all, not covered by the blood. Not covered, not born again of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus the Messiah. It's coming. Payday. Someday. The Bible makes it very clear. One of my favorite passages to point out to Jewish folks with whom the Lord gives me opportunity to witness. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Leviticus 17.11 It's the blood that makes atonement. In the blood is the life of the flesh and I have given this to you to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. My friend, you can't atone for your soul by your works. You will be judged for your works. Only in the blood can you be covered and only by the blood can you escape this ghastly scene that we've read about this morning. Hebrews 9.22 said, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Friends, as you see here, you're not judged by God at the great white throne because you failed to accept Jesus. You're judged by your works and by your works you'll be condemned. Only in Jesus can you escape that judgment. Because on Jesus Christ, God has judged your works. And the perfect substitutionary sacrifice paid your price. Will you receive it? Will you accept it? Or will you dare stand before the judge with your works? Because apart from the blood, it's coming. What you've read, what you've seen this morning, what you're hearing this morning... If there's any live audience out there, it's coming. It's coming for your lost loved ones. Quit lying to yourself. Hoping, just hoping maybe they're saved when they have no fruits. Meet for repentance. It's coming for our president except he be converted. Oh, it's coming for Joe. It's coming quick for him unless he be converted. 
It's coming for 99% of judges that sit on benches in this country today. It's coming for 99.9% of those in our halls of Congress today. It's coming. And if you're not covered in the blood, this is you standing before the throne. Many weeks in this exegetical study of Revelation that's been off and on going back to 2013, we've been camped out between chapter 20, verse 6, and chapter 20, verse 7. The last time I was with you was back in March, believe it or not. Remember, when you read Revelation 20, verse 6, the opening of Christ's millennial kingdom, telescopes immediately, verse 7, to the end of Christ's millennial kingdom, to the closing of this dispensation. And yes, dispensation, a word so many are scared of, is a biblical word. Paul used it. The Old Testament, on the other hand, provides all the details of what happens between chapter 20, verse 6, and 20, verse 7. Lots of details. And so, I literally preached to you eight messages on the millennial kingdom of Christ. If you remember, this goes way back. Why would I do that? Why would I take time to do that? Well, there's a lot of bad teaching out there. There's a lot of bad teaching. There are people that have sound, solid teaching when it comes to the gospel and salvation. But when it comes to eschatology and the coming kingdom, they don't want to deal with it. And so it leads to bad teaching. Particularly in reform circles. And my friends, I've, I've got reformed brothers that preach the gospel. I love them to death. They take a stand on salvation being of the Lord and not of man. On man being hopelessly lost in his sin. Praise God for that. But there's some bad eschatological teaching. You know, out of one hand, you, you preach the gospel, and on the other, you tell me the Bible doesn't mean what it says. So there's a lot of bad teaching out there, and that's why I felt it was important to address the millennial kingdom of Christ, what the Bible says about it, and all of those details between verses 6 and 7 in chapter 20 are in the Old Testament. All Revelation does is set the time period. You know, I talked about the Old Testament principle of Sabbath rest for the land and why this was important in the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel rejected it. That's why God carried them into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. We talked about the Lord. When He says something, He means it. In chapter 20, the word thousand, the, 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 the term thousand years is mentioned six times. Thousand means thousand in the context. If a thousand doesn't mean a thousand in Revelation 20, then whosoever doesn't mean whosoever in John 3.16. We talked about the millennium as the Sabbath rest for the earth that even creation is groaning for. When all that began right in the Garden of Eden is restored. When the second Adam does and lives out Exactly what the first Adam was supposed to do and failed to do. We talked about biblical chronology. Where does the millennium fit in? God's concept of a seven day week that ancient cultures observe. And there's no astronomical value for that and yet it's observed. It's it's God's fingerprint on man. God works seven days and then He rested on the seventh. God's present creation, the concept of 6,000 years of toil and trial, and labor under the curse of sin, crowned with a millennium of rest. Rest for God's creation. We looked at some snapshots of the millennium from the Old Testament. Chronological snapshots. Kingdom snapshots. 
And then we looked at three primary Old Testament passages. If you want to know what the coming kingdom that we pray for looks like in this present world, go to Isaiah 11 and 12. Go to Micah chapter 4, even chapter 5. We often talk about Micah 5 too at Christmas time, but we don't even think about what's written in chapter 4. If you read chapter 4, now, then you'll know why Herod was scared to death when the wise men came. Zechariah 14, we spent a little time on that. All of these messages are online on this podcast if you want to go back and listen. I've gotten them all caught up until today. The last time I was with you was March 1st. Man, things have changed. COVID-19, chaos, BLM protests all over the country, people fighting in huge brawls in our major cities. Mask Nazis, did we ever think we'd be a nation full of mask Nazis back on March 1st? Now go back and listen to some of those things that were preached. I'm not a prophet and I'm not the son of a prophet, I'm just a preacher. But God's Word is true. And these things happen in a nation that's forgotten God. At least that's what I've been saying all along to people. But you know, I'm not saying that anymore. I'm not saying these things happen in a nation that's forgotten God. Because we're way past having forgotten God in this country, my friends. We have provoked the Lord of heaven and earth in this country. These things happen in a nation that has provoked the Lord. We've provoked Him. But yet God's Word is true. Back on March 1st, we struck the tent. We finally struck the tent and picked up camp. Between chapter 20, verse 6 and 20, verse 7, I gave you a few remaining details on the millennium from lesser known Old Testament books like Amos and Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi. And then we covered chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, events that will quickly transpire at the end of Christ's millennial kingdom. One final great object lesson. From the Lord. One final lesson of human history. Human history has given us many lessons. And yet the only lesson we ever seem to learn from human history is that men never learn from history. And God's got one final lesson in store. And that lesson, when the the earth is gathered together against the camp of the saints, when Christ is ruling and reigning, And that fire comes down from heaven upon that mass that's gathered as the sands of the sea and eradicates it. One final lesson. This is what we talked about last time. No matter what state man is in. Doesn't matter what state man is in. Be it innocence, walking with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, Perhaps it's when he's governed by his own conscience, God's witness, as in the days of Noah or prior to the flood. Whether he's under self-government, as God established with Noah and his sons after the flood. Representative government. Or perhaps man is under the headship of the family and the promises that God made to Abraham. Or perhaps man, like the nation of Israel, is under the law. The law given from Mount Sinai that's also written on our conscience. Or maybe man's under grace as we are under the cross of Christ. 
Since he was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, we can have forgiveness. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, the psalmist says. Or even if man is under the kingdom rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules with a rod of iron, who sits upon the throne of David, man completely free from Satan's influence and deception, and under the rule of an all-powerful, conquering, and benevolent, Messiah King. No matter which of these situations man finds himself in or will find himself, if left to himself, he will prove himself to be hopelessly, incurably, and incorrigibly bad a failure. That's man. Man is not basically good. There's a bigger fool than one who says there's no God. It's the, it's the one that says man is basically good. He's a bigger fool in my opinion. Because evidence of, to the contrary is all around to be seen. Same for God. But the only bigger fool than the one that denies God is the one that thinks man, if left to himself, does good. The psalmist, King David, the shepherd king of Israel, wrote in Psalm 39 verse 5, Every man at his best state. Man at his absolute best state. And trust me, man's best state will be in the millennial kingdom under the reign of Christ. Is altogether vanity when left to himself. I don't care if you're talking about Eden, Babel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the great ancient kingdoms of old, Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire, the Third Reich, the USA, whether it be under Donald Trump or Joe Biden, the Antichrist, the nations at Armageddon gathered against the Lord and against His Christ, Psalm 2, or the multitude is the sand of the sea, compassed about the camp of the saints, and the beloved city at the close of millennium. It doesn't matter where in human history we are. Man will fail in his efforts to usurp God's rule. Man will fail in his efforts to be like God. Or to overthrow or frustrate his plans and his promises. Whether they be his plans and promises for Israel, for the church, or for the Messiah. God laughs. You know, God laughs, we're told twice in the Scriptures. We're told God laughs at the idea of men thinking they can overthrow overthrow the coming rule of Messiah. And God also laughs at wicked men who plot against the righteous because God sees their day is coming. You can rest assured that Almighty God laughed at that satanic democratic convention last week. He laughed because that is the wicked plotting against the just. And when I talk about the just, I'm not talking about our president. I'm talking about the remnant body of Jesus Christ that still remains in this country. You talk about the thin blue line holding back evil. My friends, it's the church that holds back evil in this world even when it's weak. And those that hate this church... And the local churches faithful to the gospel around this country are going to be wishing we were here when all hell is unleashed. Because when the restrainer, the the he, 
And the what that He indwells, the church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is taken out of the way. Woe unto the inhabitants of the world. But man will fail. Man failed in the Garden of Eden. He failed under the law at Sinai. He has failed in this church age to heed the gospel. The gospel is not an offer. It's not an offer that God offers you. Paul made it clear on Mars Mars Hill in Athens that because God's Messiah, because God's Messiah is coming to judge the world and because God has done what He's done through Messiah, God commands you to repent. Because of what Jesus did when He was crucified, buried, and raised, God commands you to repent. He doesn't offer it to you. He commands you. And praise God, whosoever will come to this fountain of life can drink freely. Can drink freely. And then at the end of all of this, the great object lesson, man, even under the reign of Messiah, fails. At the end of all this, suddenly, suddenly in a moment, that old devil that's been loosed at the end of the millennium is yanked right out of his place and cast into the lake of fire where the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet are still being tormented a thousand years later. They're not cast into the lake of fire to annihilate them. The devil's cast in that lake of fire with the antichrist and the false prophet to punish them forever and ever for their rebellion. Jesus Christ tells us very plainly in Matthew chapter 25, That the lake of fire, everlasting fire, was prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's where they're going to go. If it was prepared for the devil and his angels, you don't have to go there. You don't have to. But God yanks that devil up and throws him into that lake of fire. And then suddenly, you have the earth, you have the kingdom... You have the the fire from God out of heaven. You have the devil yanked up and thrown into hell. And then verse 11, I saw a great right throne. Suddenly, in a moment, you have a kingdom on earth. You have a battle that's not even a battle. And then God yanks back the veil of eternity. In a moment, the earth and the heaven flee and there stands a throne. A great white throne. Creation literally runs to hide and cannot be found. And then, bam! No resurrection from the dead. No resurrection from the dead, but a resurrection of the dead. The great mass of the wicked dead suddenly just standing there. Where are we? What happened? Heaven and earth blasted away and the dead all the way back to Cain who murdered one more righteous than him, the father of all man-made religion. All of the dead, one moment in torments in hell, the next standing before the throne, naked, nothing to hide. In an instant, all the dead, the wicked dead, back to Cain, Nimrod, all the way down through the ages, all the way down to the dead of today, all the way down to John McCain, Elijah Cummings and John Lewis, the heroes of our society, standing there, wicked dead, George Floyd, 
standing there dead, wicked, before the throne. I want to congratulate George Floyd. Coming on Tuesday, he's been three months drug-free. Three months drug-free. And I can guarantee you he wishes he could come back and warn this wicked nation that celebrates him that what we're pushing isn't the answer. Just like that wicked man in hell in Luke 16, Jesus preached on hell. It was a literal place. Oh, please, Father Abraham, let me go back and warn my brothers. Abraham said, they got Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear the Word of God, they won't even hear unless even if someone's raised from the dead. But suddenly the dead standing before God. I want you to picture a couple of scenes. When I think about this moment, bam, creation's gone. It runs and flees. Instantly the dead in hell are vomited up before this throne. Heaven and earth flee. This picture comes to mind. It's been some weeks ago, Bethany and I were leaving the dojo late one night and we came up to a stoplight in downtown Hickory. And this was when all of these BLM riots first broke out. And I'm sitting there at the stoplight talking. And Bethany says to me, Dad, you better lock the door. And I'm like, what? And I looked over to the side and this black man had walked up to the side of the vehicle, throwing his hands up in the air, ranting and raving and screaming and demanding that I give him money. And it was kind of creepy. It was in the dark. And I thought, man, what, what would happen if a, a, a young lady was traveling alone and this happened? And so I cracked the window and said, sir, what can I do for you? And he began to scream and holler at me, portraying this sentiment that goes around the country that every white man in this country is evil and that he owes us. And as he was ranting and raving, I very quietly and calmly reached into my dash, pulled out my revolver, and I held it pointed to the ceiling. And I said, sir, you don't want any trouble. And boy, you want to talk about flight. You want to talk about fleeing. One second he was there screaming at me. The next second he was gone. Gone. Fled into the night. I was reminded of that when I read this passage. One moment the earth and the heaven, the next minute it's gone. Now there was this really cheesy movie that came out years ago. I don't know who would appreciate it. Maybe Matthew would appreciate this. There's a couple movies. It was based on a, a Nintendo game that we used to play called Mortal Kombat. <laughs> And there was a really, really cheesy movie called Mortal Kombat. Terrible acting. The fight scenes were okay in some places. But at the very end, there's been victory. And these warriors are celebrating. There's a big party and people are running up and down with flags and banners and celebrating. And then all of a sudden, the giant temple or edifice or whatever it is crumbles. The skies roll back and all of that scene is completely gone. And there's this giant... God-like emperor there. Suddenly there. And he says to these warriors, you fools, I've come for your souls. Really cheesy. Of course, the, one of the warriors says, I don't think so. But it, it's really, you, you remember that scene? And I kind of thought about that, how everything just fled away and suddenly there was this one, this unidentified one who made it clear that Everything that had just transpired was so far below Him. Now the difference between that scene and this scene we're talking about, there won't be, no de there won't be debate with the one on the throne. There won't be any I don't think so with the one on the throne. The heavens and the earth... Don't go watch the Mortal Kombat movies. Very ridiculous. Very cheesy. B-movies. Unrealistic. It's funny how that stuff comes to mind when you're reading the Scriptures sometimes. 
What we have here is one of the most ghastly scenes in all of Scripture, and it's exactly, my friends, what we need to see and hear today in this wicked country. And I don't care who's listening. I just don't care who's listening this morning. Hell, fire, and brimstone preaching is what this nation needs. It's what God used in times past to bring this nation to its knees in repentance, and it's what we need today what we need today. I'm sick of the little sermonettes for Christianettes by the effeminate little preachers and pastors who want to tell us about hoping and coping. You know, I passed a church out here on Highway 18 last night. They finally opened back up. And it said, service inside tomorrow. Face masks are required. So in other words, you're going to turn me out of the church if I don't have a face mask? But if I'm a raving homosexual or BLM or any of that other stuff that the Methodist church just likes to love and dolt upon, it's okay. But if I don't wear a mask, I can't come in your church. That's where we are today. It's really sad when you think about the Methodist hellfire and brimstone circuit riding preachers that God used so long ago in this country. Back in 1818 here in the United States, it was the time of the Second Great Awakening. There was a fiery preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright, Methodist preacher. And it's funny because a lot of his preaching, what it produced was Baptist churches. Interesting. Fiery preacher. Used by God in a mighty way. And one day he was preaching at a conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And as he began to preach, this was in 1813, Around the time of the War of 1812. The War of 1812 just started in 1812. It didn't end there. It didn't end until New Orleans in 1815. And as he was preparing to preach, a renowned general walked into the service. And there was nowhere for him to sit. So he just came up to one of the posts in the aisle and he leaned up against the post in his military uh, uniform. It was a general who would later become president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. Old rough and ready. Rough around the edges. Didn't play games. As Bob likes to say, didn't put up with bullcrap. That's who old rough and ready the general was. And the general came in there and leaned up against the post. And then one of the preachers putting on the conference, one of the little pastors, whispered in Peter Cartwright's ear and said, Look, General Jackson's here. You better be careful what you say. Don't offend the general. And this Peter Cartwright, before he had an opportunity to really remember where he was, blurted out and said, General Jackson? Who's General Jackson? I don't care who he is. If he's not converted, he'll go to hell just like the next man. And then he went on to preach. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Sermon Service was over. The preacher, Mr. Cartwright, went back to his little hotel there in Nashville and that little Femi guy that warned him don't offend the general went out to try to find the general. I've got to apologize. I've got to apologize for the rudeness of this preacher. He did find the general. He did apologize. And not long after that, this Cartwright fellow, this bold preacher, actually ran into General Jackson on the street. And they got to conversing and the general said, you know, I didn't understand why that little old pastor came and apologized for what you had to say. You know, I actually appreciated what you had to say, preacher. 
You're no respecter of persons. And if I had a regiment of soldiers like you, we'd defeat England for all time and eternity. Not long after that, Peter Cartwright went to a luncheon that was held with the general and some other dignitaries. And there was this prideful, you know the type, the college-educated type we deal with today. And I speak as an educated man. Asked the preacher around the table in the presence of the general, Preacher, do you believe there's a place called hell? Peter Cartwright said, yes, I do. And that, that old educated blowhard said, well, you know, I'm glad I've got too much sense to believe in stupidity like that. Peter Cartwright sat there and thought to respond, and before anything could come out of his mouth, General Jackson spoke up. said, young man, I'm actually glad there's a place called hell. And the educated blowhard taken aback just a little, General, uh, why ever would you say such a thing? And the general says, because it means there's a place where damned rascals like yourself who vilify Christ and the religion of the Bible are going to end up paying for your crimes. General Jackson was rough around the edges, a wicked man in his youth, but at the end of his life, he confessed very bluntly to this nation on the brink of civil war that the Bible is the book upon which our republic rests. And if we take away that foundation, we cannot stand. You see, a bold preacher preached hellfire and brimstone, and the roughest of men appreciated it, and it was used in his life. I wish we had more preachers like that today. Because you'd be surprised how many are out in those crowds, just like the general. That's what they want to hear, because they're sick and tired of the dancing around. They're sick and tired of them being told what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. So this is a little hellfire and brimstone, and I don't care who's listening. We need it. Guys, what we see here in Revelation 20, I'm going to tell you what it's not. This scene around the great white throne is not a general judgment. A lot of people who are sound in many areas of theology would speak of judgment as just some general thing in the future. One day there's going to be a judgment. We don't really know what's involved, and so we're not going to... Deal with it. Guys, there's no such thing as a general judgment in the Scripture. There are very specific judgments that God executes with different times, places, bases, and results. And this is just the culmination of that. Just the culmination. You know, I think about those who would not even want to address judgment in the Scriptures. Who would not even want to talk about these things. I think of the word... Atheist. What is an atheist? An atheist is not someone, make no mistake, an atheist is not someone who truly believes there is no God. Here's how you can test it. This is how Mordecai Ham, that old preacher, that hellfire and brimstone preacher who used to preach around the south. Billy Graham heard him preach in 1934 and was converted when he went to the to service uninterested to mock the preacher. But Mordecai Ham had... Uh, 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 confronted an atheist once and said, you know, you vile, wicked man, I'm going to pray that God kills you and kills your family unless you repent. And that old atheist said, why would you pray such a thing, preacher? And he said, well, you're an atheist. You wouldn't care because it would have no power. But the fact is, you know there's a God and you're scared of such a prayer. And if you won't be converted, I'm praying God's going to kill you so you'll stop leading your family to hell. See, there's no such thing as an atheist. 
God has put eternity in our hearts. Men know there's a God. What an atheist is, is somebody that just doesn't want to deal with God. Fingers in the ears, head in the sand. Just don't want to deal with God. Think they can run, think they can move away, go find a job somewhere, do whatever, so we don't have to deal with God. An amillennialist is the same thing in a sense. There's some good brothers that would call themselves amillennialists. An amillennial doesn't deny the millennium. He can if he believes the Bible. He just don't want to deal with it. We want to deal with the last thing. We want to deal with this book because God says it was written to the churches. John was told to give it to the churches. And so I want to look at some of the judgments here in Scripture. This is not, there is not a general judgment. There are judgments. Just like there was a specific judgment in the past. When God flooded this world and destroyed it and then renovated it after Noah for a purpose. Since the flood, I can think of at least seven judgments in Scripture that we would do well to consider. Probably one of the most important of all. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Verse 33. This Jesus said, signifying what death he should die. My friends, there was the judgment of the believer's sins on Christ at the cross. That was a judgment. When? What time period? Passover, A.D. 30. The Messiah fulfilled the feast of Passover literally. And our sins were judged upon Him. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Our sins were judged upon Christ. What was the place? The hill of Golgotha. Calvary. Outside the city walls. Hebrews said Christ was taken without the camp. Wasn't at the church of the Holy Sepulchre that the little fancy shrine the Catholics have built in Jerusalem which would have been inside the city walls where they go and engage in all sorts of idolatry that would make Jeroboam's golden calves at Bethel and Dan seem like patty cakes. It was outside the city at a Roman execution site, a crossroads of two major thoroughfares where all could see and wag their heads. The believer's sin was judged upon Christ. What was the result of that judgment? Death to the Messiah, but life to the believer. You see, God can't, we talk about God forgiving sins, and He does. But my friends, God cannot forgive sin without punishing it. On Jesus Christ, God punished your sins so that you could be forgiven. Will you allow Jesus to accept your punishment? Or will you endeavor to pay for it yourselves at the great white throne hoping you've got an excuse that will get somewhere with God? There's another judgment we do well to consider. The believer's self-judgment. Throughout our life in Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11 in a context talking about how the Corinthian church had misused the Lord's table. I'd be careful about drive-through communion services, my friends. I see them advertised all around this country. There was a church that misused God's table once and some of them were sick and some were dead. Paul warned about it. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, For if we, that is us believers in the church, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Guys, if we would judge ourselves, that's what confession is. Confessing our sins is to judge ourselves. If we will acknowledge our sin in our walk with the Lord then God won't have to chastise us. But if we won't judge ourselves, He will chastise us as believers so that we will not be condemned with the world. What is the time of this judgment? Every day in Christ, my friends. Every day we are in Christ is when we should be judging ourselves. Where is it? It's in the earth, in our life, this present life. What's the basis of this judgment? It's God's Word. It's obedience. It's being right with the Lord. So that we can be used by Him. And what's the result? It's either God's chastisement and discipline, or it's His approval. Not approval in terms of eternal salvation, but in terms of usefulness in this life. You know, what's really scary is not a believer who fails to judge himself, who's chastised for it, because chastisement from the Lord is as a father for His Son. It means that God is chastising His child. What's really scary is someone who claims to know the Lord and lives for the devil and there is no chastisement. Because as Hebrews says, when there is no chastisement, you are bastards. That's a good old King James word. That King's English says it plain. If, you're, if Christ is in you, God will discipline you if you walk not in the Spirit, if you turn from the things of the world, just like He disciplined Solomon. There is no discipline. Woe unto you. But believe self-judgment. Guys, judge yourselves. And you won't have to be judged. God won't have to chastise you. He confess it, acknowledge it only. The believer's self-judgment. There's a third judgment, very specific. God's judgment of Israel, God's future judgment of Israel as a nation. For her many centuries of rebellion and rejection of her Messiah. This is laid out very plain in Ezekiel chapter 20. In Jeremiah 30. In Ezekiel 20, God said He's going to take Israel in the last days out into the wilderness and plead with them face to face and cause them to pass under the rod to purge them. Jeremiah calls this the time of Jacob's trouble. Remember the tribulation that's coming, Daniel's 70th week, the last half of which Christ called the great tribulation has two purposes. To punish the world, the Gentile nations for their wickedness, and to wake up the nation of Israel. To judge and chastise them. Hosea chapter 5.15 tells us very plainly that Messiah would come and then He would return unto where He came from until something happens. Until Israel acknowledges her great transgression. Israel's greatest transgression of all history was failing to receive 
or rejecting her Messiah. So the Messiah says, I will come and I will go until they acknowledge their offense. So guys, when we're talking about the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19, coming in Armageddon, that can't happen until Israel acknowledges her sin as a nation. But yet Paul told us believers that Christ's coming was imminent. Even Paul said in Thessalonians that the dead in Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain. Paul spoke of himself. He thought Christ was going to come for his church in his own lifetime. That's why we believe and preach the catching away of the church just like God caught away Enoch, caught away Elijah. It's imminent. Does that mean we should be lazy? Oh, no, 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 no. The lazy man's the one that buries a talent in the earth. But for the church, Christ's coming is imminent. As Israel as a nation, what is the time of this judgment? The great tribulation. Where does it take place? It takes place in the land of Palestine, in Edom and Moab, in Israel and Jordan and Syria. We talked about all of this. How Israel has to flee into the desert. What's the basis? Obedience to God and His Word and their failure to recognize Messiah. What are the results? Israel, Paul says, and so all Israel shall be saved. They will acknowledge their sin. There will be a national conversion at the second advent. Zechariah, God said, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. There's a fourth judgment we would do well to consider. That third judgment compels me to preach the gospel to the Jew first. And I often tell these folks, look, you, don't, you think what happened in the Holocaust was bad? You've got no clue what's coming, the time of Jacob's trouble. Get right with God now and be part of His bride. There's always been a Jewish element of the church. The church has always been Jew and Gentile. Come and be saved and escape the wrath of God. Judgment seat of Christ. The fourth judgment I was reminded of as I studied these passages. The judgment seat of Christ. Believers, the works of believers judged for reward. Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the throne of Christ. It's not thronos, the Greek word for throne. It's the bema seat, the bema the tribunal, the meeting. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man, he's writing to the church, build upon the, this foundation, the foundation of Christ. So the foundation of Christ is, a, is assumed in the lives of the ones he's talking to. Shall build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon or thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so is as by fire. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ. We must stand before it. Again, in the original language, this is the Bema seat. This is the place of meeting. This is the powwow. 
It's not the throne of David. It's not the great white throne. Different word. The Bema seat. It's between, I believe, and I've talked about this before. It's between, takes place between the rapture and Christ's second coming. It's in heaven at the Bema seat, the tribunal, the judge's chair, not the king's throne. What is the basis of this judgment? Works, both good and bad. And what is the result? It's not damnation. Paul says it clear here in 1 Corinthians 3. It's reward or loss of reward. But not the loss of a single soul purchased on the cross. That reward are those crowns. Those crowns that are cast at the Lord's feet there in Revelation 5. I don't want to stand there empty handed when it's time to fall on our face before the Lamb who was worthy to open the scroll. And the rewards are also authority. The authority that will be granted in Christ's kingdom. We don't need the power and authority of presidents and kings and officers now. If we'll serve God and as much as possible, live peaceably with all men, and please God, we'll have authority in the coming kingdom where there is no corruption to tempt us. There's also the judgment of the living Gentile nations at Messiah's coming. This is Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25 is not Revelation 20, the great white throne, as some teach. It's not. It's so very different when you compare the passages. At Christ's coming, the nations that were aligned with Antichrist in His persecution of Israel, Christ's brethren, will be judged. The survivors of Armageddon, those surviving nations, will be judged. As we talked about this before, this is the Messiah's Nuremberg trials. You see, there was the Holocaust under Nazi Germany and all the horrendous things that took place. The Nazis were overthrown. The Allies conquered. And then what did they do? They went and rounded up all the Nazis that, had been, that could be found serving in leadership and they were put on trial for their crimes. And many were executed. The Holocaust, the time of Jacob's trouble coming for Israel is the tribulation. Messiah's Nuremberg trials are that judgment of the sheep and the goats. When is this judgment? It's immediately following the time of tribulation. When Christ is inaugurated king, its place is the earth, Messiah's throne. What throne is this? It's the throne that the angel told Mary. God is going to give to Jesus the throne of His father David. It's not God's great white throne. It's the throne of David, Luke 1.32. The throne of His glory, Jesus says in Matthew 25. And what's the basis for this judgment? It's the nation's dealings with the Jew, Christ's brethren. Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren... He's talking about the Jews. He's standing there in a crowd of Jews. Paul talked about Christ's brethren after the flesh. According to how they treated them during the time of the awful persecution and purging of the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the ultimate fulfillment of what God told Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. What are the results? Those nations friendly or harboring to Israel under the beast will enter the millennial kingdom. Israel's persecutors, just as it is prophesied in the book of Obadiah, 
If you want to read the book of Obadiah more than anything, the principle to be gleaned is God doesn't forget Gentile nations that persecute the people of Israel. There's payday. Not just for the individual sinner, but for the nation. (coughs) Israel's persecutors will enter the lake of fire with Antichrist and the false prophets. This is the first fruits of the second resurrection. My friends, there's a first resurrection. It was Christ on the third day. That first resurrection had first fruits. What are we told? Matthew 27 were seen walking around the holy city after that resurrection. The saints. There were Old Testament saints that got up out of the grave with a resurrection body and were seen walking around the city. Those were the first fruits. Then there's the harvest of that great first resurrection. At the rapture, those that are dead in Christ and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And then we have the gleanings, just like what Ruth and the women went through the field to get after the harvest, those tribulation saints. The second resurrection, Daniel says, is a resurrection to shame and contempt. A rever- not a resurrection from the dead, a resurrection of the dead. And it too has a first fruits. Antichrist and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire. And then those first fruits, those Gentile nations, those Nuremberg trials, they're going to be joined in that lake of fire. And then when it's all said and done, and the purpose of this present earth has been fulfilled, and everything's been restored and made right, bam, it flees, and there's that great white throne. The harvest of that second resurrection, the second death, the resurrection to everlasting shame and content. Guys, Revelation 20 is not the same as Matthew 25. It's a different time, a different place, a different basis of judgment, a different result. There are at least 18 contrasts between these two pieces of Scripture. And I'm not satisfied to say there's just a general judgment. I want to know what Christ says and what He's teaching. I want to know what to be prepared for. I want to know what to preach. There's another judgment that we touched on briefly. The judgment of the rebellious angels. Remember, hell, the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. 2 Peter chapter 2 talks about this. Jude in verse 6 and 7 talks about these angels that left their first estate. I don't want to get into that. I believe we're told what that is in Genesis chapter 6. I believe these angels have been reserved in judgment for a place and a time, a place called Tartarus in the original language of the Greek. Remember, it's a special compartment in hell where these wicked angels who did something wicked, wicked, wicked in Genesis chapter 6 are being reserved. And they're being reserved because when one of those trumpets of judgment sounds, I believe it's the sixth trumpet, they're going to be unleashed from under the river Euphrates. Hell will be unleashed on earth in the tribulation. But these angels, these fallen angels will be judged. They will be loosed from their prison during the tribulation and then they will be judged. When are they judged? After the millennium. Also at this, in this time frame of the great white throne. How do we know that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Why are we so afraid to judge matters in the church? Why are we so afraid to let the least esteemed among us judge matters in the church? Because we will judge angels one day. Therefore, you'd do wise to at least listen to what the least esteemed in your body has to say about a matter. Why do we go outside the church to try to solve these problems within our church? We're going to judge angels one day. 
Paul said. At the place, I believe, of the great white throne, the angels will be judged. Their basis is either obedience or allegiance to God. Their result is eternal damnation in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. That means no man, as I said before, needs to go there. Why don't you need to go there? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation That light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light. Neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. That's why there's dead standing before the throne because men hate the light. But you don't need to go to hell prepared for the devil and his angels. If you persist, however, in serving Satan and his lust, you are of your father the devil, and you're going to spend eternity with him. And then we have the judgment of the wicked dead. So my point, there's no general judgment. God judged our sins on Christ at the cross. We need to judge ourselves. There's a judgment coming for the nation of Israel. There's a judgment coming for the Gentile nations who align themselves with Antichrist. There's a judgment coming for the rebellious angels. And there's a judgment coming for the wicked dead. All the dead, not judged with the goats at the beginning of the millennium. All the wicked dead from Genesis, the days before the flood until the fire from heaven that destroys those gathered as the sands of the sea. Children of the millennium. All the wicked dead. After the millennium, before the new heavens and the new earth is the time of this judgment. The place, the great white throne. And now, I finish my introduction. Let's dive into the verses. I have the longest introductions known to man. That's why I like to read the scripture first. Today I decided I'm just going to read it. No commentary. Let's go right to it. And I'm going to stop soon and we're going to finish this next week. I found that lost sermon. So we actually get two weeks to talk about this ghastly scene. And I think it's worth it. But let me just start with verse 11. Let's let's zero in on it. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. What is the place of this future judgment? In Greek, we're told it is a great, that word Greek, great in Greek is mega. It's where we get the word mega from. This is a mega white throne. We have thrones in Scripture. This is a mega throne. Pure white. 
and clean. Guys, this isn't the throne, the thronos of Revelation 4 and 5. The one with a rainbow surrounding it, an emerald's hue, around which are gathered the beasts, the elders, the angels, and the church. This isn't that throne. You know, it's funny, you know, in Revelation chapter 4, the elders, which are representatives of the church, and thousands upon thousands are gathered around that throne, and the Lamb, who's worthy to open the scroll, they bow down and say, Lord, Thou art worthy to receive honor, glory, and power. For Thou hast redeemed us with us, with Thy blood, out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Guys, that's the church in heaven in Revelation 4, having been raptured out just like John in chapter 4, verse 1, while the Lamb prepares to open the scroll. This isn't that throne. Around that throne is the peaceful hue of the emerald. The rainbow that symbolizes God's covenant of peace with man. This is not that throne. This is a great white throne. A mega throne. There's an interesting passage in Exodus 24 that often gets overlooked. We think about how Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God couldn't show Moses Himself in all His glory. So Moses was put in the cleft of the rock. Moses was put in the cleft of the rock and was allowed to see God's backside pass by. And then when he came down off the mountain, his face was glowing. And we think, okay, you know, Moses was the only one I can think of in the Old Testament that saw God. The only one. Okay, I guess Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, we talk about these other stories, but we think about Moses is the one that saw God. But before this happened, look what it says in Exodus 24. Start at verse 9. Then went up Moses and Arad, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. So not just Moses, but Aaron and his sons, the priests, and the 70 elders of Israel. They went up to Mount Sinai. Look at verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. They saw Him. And there was under Him... His feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire song. And as it were, the body of heaven in His clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, He laid not His hand. Also they saw God. And what did they do? They did eat and drink. Man, what a powerful picture of the peaceful access we have to God through the Messiah. They saw God and His feet. And the paved work at His feet were like a sapphire stone. God seated upon a throne. This is not that throne. Isaiah in chapter 6 did see the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. And the seraphs, the seraphim ministered unto Him. This is not that throne. The place where Isaiah found peace. Lord, I am a sinful man. Depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the seraph touched his lips with a hot coal and said, Thy sins are taken away. God said, who, is, who will go for me? Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. This is not that throne. At these, throne. at these thrones, men in the presence of God found peace. But not here. No rainbow, no emerald hue, no paved work of a sapphire stone, no seraphim. This is the great white throne. The mega throne. And there's one, Him, who sat upon the throne. This, my friends, is the throne of final authority. 
You know, when we look back at human history, you might think the most important thing in all of history is the cross of Christ and the redemption of man. And I say no. There's a matter that even trumps these things. You see, the most important matter, the most important issue of all time and eternity is not the cross and it's not the redemption of man. It's final authority and who possesses it. The most important of all issues from time immemorial is authority. Who has it? It's the creator, not the creation. It's the maker, not the creature. In His hands and by His Word is final authority. And by His authority, His glory trumps all. He will be glorified. That's what's most important. But what's good news for us is that a part of that, an important part of God's glory, is the redemption of man. In God becoming flesh and purchasing a people to Himself that can share in that glory for all time and eternity. But my friends, if you can't recognize God's authority in this life, you can't understand and appreciate what Jesus did on the cross. If you can't recognize God's authority and the authority of His Word, don't call yourself a Christian because you don't appreciate and believe upon the cross of Christ. It's so funny to me how we talk, 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 talk in the churches. We pray and we're trusting God in all of this stuff. And we talk a big game when we offer prayer requests. And then when a little old virus comes that is real, that has killed a man that I knew and loved, when a virus comes along, we head for the hills. Scared to death. What happened to, let's trust the Lord. What happened that whoso puts his trust in the Lord will be safe. We don't even believe the things we read. We don't live as if we do at least. And then you got so many Christians afraid to go to heaven. Final authority. This is the throne of final authority. If you won't accept God as the authority, the final authority in your life, then you're going to learn it one way or another. Every knee will bow and acknowledge that authority. And this is that throne. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Therefore... My disciples go into all nations. Why should we be motivated to go into all nations and preach the gospel? Because Christ has the authority. It's been given to Him. And John saw the throne, but he also saw the face of the supreme chief justice. The supreme chief justice. And my friends, I don't care what chief justice you are in what country. Chief Justice John Roberts is going to hang his head in shame if he doesn't repent when he stands before this Chief Justice. For there is no corruption with him. There is no deciding vote to keep the status quo that this wicked man is famous for. John saw the face of the Supreme Chief Justice. Not like Israel's elders who only saw his feet and Moses who saw his backside. John sees his face. The face of resolve, a face of firmness, and a fixing of purpose. The face of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. The face of the Creator. And guess what, my friends? What immediately happens? The heaven and the earth, the present creation, flees. Now that's authority. 
When you possess authority to cause heaven and earth to flee in your presence, that's authority. Do you know Jesus Himself had that authority? He chose not to use it at that time for our benefit. But He had it and He made it very clear to the religious leaders of His day. I think one of the most powerful things Jesus ever said was in Luke 19. On Palm Sunday, the one time Israel recognized Him as their Messiah. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The end of the 69 weeks, God's prophetic clock came to a pause with Israel when they were at Messiah the Prince. And it'll start ticking again when the man of sin signs a covenant with Israel. Daniel 70 weeks, we talked about that. But Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. Look at what these people are saying about you. They're worshiping you. Stop them, stop them. Jesus said, look, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. You see, the Creator has all power over His creation. And before Him it flees. If we won't recognize, if not a single person ever believed upon Christ, He would still be glorified. He would still be just. He would still receive glory for even the rocks and the trees would cry out. And they will in the millennial kingdom. Authority. The word used here in the original language in Revelation 20 about fleeing away is a Greek word that literally means to vanish. I think of missing 411, you know, where these people go out in the woods and they're hiking one moment, their partner turns around, they're gone, and they're never found again. It happens a lot in this country. Some of my believing brothers and sisters who at least have enough sense in third world countries to know there's a spiritual realm, to know that the devil is real, to know that the demons are real, at least they have a, you know, they kind of have an idea of what this kind of stuff is. But anyway, this is missing 411 for the heaven and the earth. It flees, it vanishes. This Greek word is where we get the Spanish word fuego because the Greek word is feugo. It's very similar. The Spanish word fuego, who knows what that means? Fire. Fire. The heaven and the earth flee. They vanish away. No place is found for them. Well, turn to 2 Peter. Looky, looky what we have here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. What does Peter say? 2 Peter 3, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now, the heavens and the earth which are now since the flood, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What's the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men? The great white throne. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is not saying that a thousand never means a thousand. The context is clear here that with God, time is irrelevant. So whether His judgment comes tomorrow or a thousand years from now, it's just as powerful. It will come. This is why it seems to be slow, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 9 Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which this particular day the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner 
Of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There's coming a day when this present creation in an instant will be dissolved as by fire. The day of God. The day of the judgment and perdition of wicked men. Guys, when John says the heaven and the earth flee, This is exactly what he's talking about. This is what Peter saw. The present creation at the end of Messiah's rule. Bam, it's gone. It's dissolved. In a moment. And it's the day of God. The day of the judgment of wicked men. Now guys, verse 11 is pretty powerful here. Knowing that this is the future of this present creation, in an instant it's all lost. That ought to affect our behavior as Christians. It really ought to affect our behavior. What are we clinging to in this life? This is that day Peter talks about here in Revelation 20.11. This is that day. This is what happens when the heaven and the earth flee and there's no place found for them. They're dissolved. In an instant, bam, a great noise, and then the dead, all out of hell, God's county jail just standing before the judge waiting for their sentence. You see, hell, my friends, is God's county jail. Those that die in this life, your unsaved relative you buried this year, some of those wicked congressmen that the country worshipped as if they were gods that died in the last few months, people that hated God. You can go back and read their own words. People like George Floyd who knew not God based upon His works. By their fruits you shall know them. They're just in the county jail, guys. In the heart of the earth where the rich man went. They haven't even been judged yet. Their soul's in hell. But there's one day when hell's going to be emptied in an instant and the dead will stand before the one on the throne. And they'll be sentenced. And then they'll be cast into a lake of fire. A lake that God ignites with His own breath. We're going to talk about that next week. I'm going to wrap it up today um, with this last thing. Daniel saw this scene. He saw this very scene. In a vision that he was given in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. You know the one from Belshazzar's feast, the writing on the wall. In his first year, Daniel saw this vision. It was about three years before the events of Daniel 6 in the lion's den. And it was about three years before he got the 70 weeks prophecy that sets God's timetable for Israel. You know, Nebuchadnezzar sees the future of Gentile kingdoms as they are seen by men. Mighty metals. Precious metals in a statue. God shows Daniel in chapter 7 these exact same Gentile kingdoms as God sees them. Hideous beasts that come up out of the sea. Daniel has shown many things in this chapter concerning God's plan and purpose for Israel and the Gentiles. And he admits that the things he saw grieved him and troubled him greatly. And in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we have an interesting window into the very thing that John sees. And I want to leave you with this to ponder this week. Ezekiel, Daniel, comes after Ezekiel chapter 7, 
verses 9 and 10. Now what Daniel has seen is these rise of these Gentile kingdoms, that fourth Gentile kingdom, Rome, that arises. And then he sees a little horn come up. And this little horn has a mouth. And it speaks some very bold, some very big mouth, and some very blasphemous things. And it causes Daniel to have pause. What in the world is this thing talking about? Who would dare be so bold? And then suddenly Daniel sees in verses 9 and 10, after he sees the little horn, the Antichrist, with eyes like a man speaking great things, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. So he's telescoped immediately to a, to a climax, to an end scene. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. My friends, he that sits on the throne is the Ancient of Days, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. That's how Daniel, John described Jesus in Revelation 1. And as he was described in 19 when he comes back to earth. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. So Daniel hears this Antichrist talking a big talk and then he sees the great white throne. And then because of what he sees in this scene, he starts thinking about how foolish, what in the world was this little horn talking about? And so God then shows him what happens to the little horn at the end of the tribulation. And then we're told that the other Gentile kingdoms Their lives are prolonged for another purpose. You see, the Antichrist and the false prophet and those those, uh, nations that survive are cast into the lake of fire, but all the rest from all history are preserved for another purpose. And that's for the ultimate judgment at the great white throne. They're prolonged for a season and a time. And then Daniel sees the coming of Christ. Not only does this Ancient of Days who sits on the throne at the end of all time judge, but He also gives His power and His glory to another. And who is this another? I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Verse 14, And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom. So Daniel sees a lot of things. He sees the great white throne. He sees the tribulation. He sees the kingdom of Messiah. And then he's told, we're told in verse 15 that he was grieved in his spirit. And the visions of his head troubled him. And that's when we have the angel come and explain a lot of these things to him. He gets the 70 weeks prophecy later. He gets prophecies that are very detailed about future events leading up to Antichrist. But Daniel sees these things. What does he see before this throne? He sees thousands, thousands ministering unto the judge. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2? He says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? You see, at the great white throne, there are thousands and thousands that minister unto the judge. That's the redeemed who will take, play, who will take part in judging the world. 
But yet, though thousands and thousands minister unto Him, 10,000 times 10,000 stand before Him in judgment. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 22:14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Thousand thousands is small compared to 10,000 times 10,000. The saints ministering to the Ancient of Days, the wicked dead standing before Him. This is what Daniel saw as the resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt. In Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. And at just like John sees in Revelation 20, the judgment was set and the books were opened. And this profound scene then gets Daniel thinking about the great words of the little horn. And then he sees his destruction, the second advent. He sees that the rest will be prolonged for a season in time at the end of time. And then he gets a snapshot of the second coming. The same ancient of days at the final judgment gives Messiah a kingdom that will transcend Messiah's kingdom. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming, guys, and there's a few things that transcend this present creation into the new creation. One of them is the kingdom of Messiah, the new Jerusalem, we're going to see. The second one is Israel, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham that are saved. And the third is the church, things that bridge the two creations. That's a powerful picture. And I want to end with this. As we think about this great white throne, and we're going to get into it more in depth, the basis of the judgment. Men, what is it to be judged by our works next week? I want you to think about something. This same Ancient of Days who sits upon that great mega throne before whose face the heaven and the earth flees. This same Ancient of Days gives glory. He shares His glory with the Son of Man. Now, if the Son of Man is just a man, that's puzzling. Because in Isaiah 42, verse 8, God is very clear to Israel. He's very clear to all men. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. I will not give my glory to another, God says. And yet, in Daniel... Chapter 7, verse 14. And there was given Him, who, who is this? The Son of Man, who came with the clouds of heaven. There was given Him dominion glory. God won't share His glory with another, but He shares it with the Son of Man, the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah is not another. He is God. He is the second person of the Godhead. And you know what? At the end of the millennium, when Christ will have reigned and put all His enemies under His feet and this present creation will have been redeemed and will have fulfilled its purpose and Israel would have done done what it said it would do at Mount Sinai when all has been made right, even the Son will submit Himself to the Father that God may be all in all for all eternity. You see, God shares His glory with Messiah. When Jesus was being chastised at His trial by those self-righteous high priests, the high priest got so angry and says, I demand, I adjure you, you tell us now, are you the Messiah? Jesus didn't feel the need to defend Himself. His works proved it. 
He said, you say it, but I will tell you this. There's coming a day when you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And boy, they got so angry because they knew what verse He was referring to in Daniel 7. They knew that verse was talking about the Messiah. And they knew when He said that He was claiming to be God. And they tore their clothes. What evidence do we need? What witnesses do we need? This man is guilty of blasphemy. And then He proved them all wrong when He rose from the dead. You see, the Messiah is not another. He is God in the flesh. God all in all. The Trinity is not a New Testament doctrine, my friends. The Trinity, the Godhead, is all over the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the Lord, God the Father. Israel saw Him, the elders did. His feet were like a paved sapphire stone. But you also have the arm of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. My friends, the arm of the Lord and the Word of the Lord is the second person in the Godhead. The Son of God, the Son of Man that stood in that fiery furnace. He's the arm of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. And you also have the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord rested in full upon the Word of the Lord, the Messiah. And the Messiah fulfilled the will of the Lord, His Father. Daniel has shown that the future Messiah of Israel is also the judge of the great white throne. God all in all. You see, at the great white throne, it's God all in all that judges. One with final authority. Thousands and thousands minister unto Him, but 10,000 times 10,000 stand before Him. And the books will be open. From Him, from His face, the heaven And the earth will flee. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, a bum on the street or a playboy in a mansion, whether you're Jeffrey Epstein or an old drunk on the city of Los Angeles. It doesn't matter. You'll stand before God and the books will be open. If anything, such a message for the redeemed, for those of us who are saved in here, ought to at least give us give us pause. It ought to make us fear, not to fear the judgment we have escaped, but to fear the wrath that is coming for this world. And instead of resting on our laurels and saying, oh, we believe in the rapture, we believe we're just going to wait for Christ to come, this is not our problem. No, it is our problem. Because God says, who will go from me? We've seen God today in His Word, just like Isaiah. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Seeing God provoked someone to surrender to missions in Isaiah 6. Will will we be the ones that say, Okay, God, this is serious business. Praise Jesus, you've redeemed me and I don't have to worry about it. But there's a damnable world and a damnable country out here and it's coming for them all. Here I am, Lord, send me. I hope that will be your attitude today. Guys, we'll come back next week and I will finish this chapter. Um, We're going to talk about The lake of fire. Tophet, as it's described in the Old Testament. And my friends, when you think about, I want you to think about a couple things. Jesus preaches about hell in Mark chapter 9. Three times He describes eternal fire as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is actually a quotation from Isaiah 66 where... The lake of fire is seen. 
And we're going to learn a couple things about the lake of fire that do not match in the Scriptures what you may have been told. You may have been told that the lake of fire is separation from God for all eternity. My friends, that's not true. The Bible says the lake of fire is a place where men are tormented for all eternity in the presence of the Lamb and His angels. Maybe you've been told that the lake of fire is a distant place that will be put out of all existence and we'll just go into the new heaven and the new earth and it's all forgotten. Oh no! That lake is going to be an eternal testimony. Who's ever been, who, who's been to Arlington Seminary to, Cemetery to see the, the, the tomb of the unknown soldier with its eternal flame burning at all times as a reminder? The lake of fire that God ignites with His breath is going to burn for all eternity and there's going to be a window in the new heavens and the new earth whereby men will see and be reminded at a distance about God's judgment. These are things written clearly. So sometimes we say things that don't match with the Scriptures. We need to be careful. Idle hands are the devil's workshop are not in the Scriptures. It's not in there. If you, if you build it, they will come. That's not in the Scriptures. But idle hands do bring abomination and all kinds of sin to a country. That's pretty clear. But the, those words are not in the Scripture. The principle is probably there. But Anyway, I want to talk about some of that. Ghastly picture. Sometimes we need to pause and stop hiding from the ghastly. But take hope, friends, because right after this scene, there, you're going to see something beautiful. The most beautiful picture in all of Scripture. It's so good to be back with you. Um, it's been a while since I've been in a pulpit when this thing f- came down with the, the COVID and all of those things. You know, I was tired. I just didn't want to preach anymore. I was tired of it all. And I wanted instead to be preached to. And guys, I just want to tell you one of the biggest blessings that I've experienced during this whole lockdown and seeing all my plans for the ministry in the, in the year train wreck is some of the good preaching I've been able to sit in here and listen to. You know, there's been several of you that preach, and I've been ministered to. And because I was ministering to that fire deep down that, that uh, flickers every once in a while, it gets burning again. It's a fire in my bones I can't shut up. So I was so, I'm honored to stand here today and next week. And, uh, I can only stand here because other men of God preach the Word boldly in a way that convicts me and keeps that fire burning. So thank you guys for that. And, and uh, I'll close in prayer over our food and we'll fellowship together. Lord, we thank You today for this Word, this ghastly scene that has been laid before us. Father, it, it makes Your grace, it makes Your salvation in Jesus Christ all the more beautiful and, and powerful. Lord, that great white throne drives me to think about the throne of God in heaven with the rainbow and the emerald's hue around which the saints cast down their crowns to Him who is worthy to take the scroll. Lord, Your grace is magnified when we read about hell and damnation. And we thank You. We don't deserve it. But You've been merciful to call us from before the foundation of the world. It's a sobering thought that many are called, but few are chosen. But thankfully, Lord, you're not willing that any should perish. And I just pray that this would convict us to be a witness for you, to shine a light in darkness. Lord, not to take sides, because God doesn't take sides. God doesn't take the Republican side or Democrat side. God is righteous and authoritative. May we we determine whether or not we are on His side by His Word. And may that rock of resolve in our lives... Uh, Draw people to Yourself, O Lord. 
that they may not stand before this throne. So Lord, bless our time of fellowship. Bless the food that's been made. And uh, um, thank you for this body of believers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.